Greetings. Welcome to Calvary Christian Fellowship. Ready for Wednesday night? Well, welcome those watching in. Let's, um, uh, we've had so many weeks with technical difficulties. I'm not actually used to starting like right in the dot on time here. So glad that uh, everything kind of worked out. So let's jump in. This is good because we have lots to talk about tonight. Let's, let's open up in prayer and, and ask the Lord for his presence and for his help this evening. Father, we bless you. We pray that um, that as we open your word, that it it uh, would have your intended effect of it in our lives. Your word is a mirror, Lord, that through, through which we can examine our souls. And Father, even as we use a physical mirror to look at ourselves and to make our uh, uh, attend to ourselves, may we. Look at your word that we might attend to ourselves. And Father, may it not be simply about knowledge we gain as we share in here this evening, but may it, it, it transform us, may it affect us, may we take it out the door with us. Father, we thank you for, um, I pray that you help me, that as I'm sharing, that I would share those things that are on your heart. Give me wisdom understanding and the ability to communicate those things that would express uh, your love for us, your plans for us, and what it is you would say to us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, for those who have been praying for my mom and are aware of the situation, thank you, thank you. She's going home from the hospital today. Um, They uh, did a procedure yesterday where they found, um, oops, hang on, my computer went to sleep there, um, where they found a blockage. She had, she had uh, th- there's three main arteries in word today that she's feeling much, much better and actually being released to go home. Um, for uh, her battles with COPD and for my sister for full recovery and healing for her from that, that her body will start to absorb nutrition. And she can begin to um, uh, uh, to heal in all of her digestive uh, systems that they'll that they'll heal up. So grateful for the removal of all cancer from her. So this is some um, appreciate very much all the prayers. And uh, all right, so we are in the book of Daniel. We're so close, guys. We're so close. But tonight, we've got a major big theme we're going to talk about. Um, Daniel brings up the subject of revelation, not revelation, uh, resurrection. Daniel brings up the subject of resurrection. And how many know that resurrection is a big theme of the Bible? It's huge. Um, Now, most of us are familiar with resurrection because we see it in the New Testament. But what I'm going to show is that it has a rich uh, um, background that comes from deep in the Hebrew Scriptures. And the New Testament authors um, uh, borrow from that and bring that into and 
are expecting these things. And Daniel is probably the, one of the clearest places in all of the Bible that introduces this subject of resurrection. So that's where we're going to go tonight. Um, as always, do a little bit of an intro. Um, my, can you click on the, uh, the slides? There we go. The main source I've been using for our study is Dr. Wendy Witter's work um, in uh, Lagos Mobile Ed, that course. Uh, highly recommend uh, Lagos Bible Software in um, taking advantage of the mobile ed courses that they have. If you ever get a chance to do that, um, highly recommend this. The theology of Daniel, I'm just going to hit these super quick because we got a lot to get into. Daniel's all about big themes, huge themes in Daniel. God is sovereign. Now, why is that a huge theme in Daniel? Because they're in the middle of suffering. You know, because there's exile. They've been taken away from their land. There, there's, everything's, everything's gone. And, and when do you need to know God is in control the most? In those moments when it seems like he's not. And so the second theme is God care is, continues to care for his people, even when things are hard, even when things are difficult. Um, and uh, and he's 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 preparing them, in fact, through this book for things that are coming that are really hard and really difficult. And if you will, he's preparing us as well. He's preparing us as well. So um, these are major themes. And finally, theology through story. There's so much in the scriptures that's about the story. Hi, how are you doing? That's um, about the story, um, and that's taught through the story. Uh, so. Um, we learn about who God is. We learn about what he wants to teach us through the story itself. And, and so we've got to pay attention to the details in the story. And so we're going to see some details tonight as we get, we're at the very, very end of the story. But we get to this end, you know, here we are in these last few, these last three chapters in 10, 11, and 12. And there's, it's the longest literary section in the entire book of Daniel. And it is packed with, with so much stuff. And it's borrowed from so much in all of the other uh, other places in Scripture. All right. So when we, just an overview on the book of Daniel. Can you click on it again? There we go. Uh, when you, overview, I've been using Dr. John Lennox's overview of the book. Kind of a, a part A, part B comparison. It starts off in the Babylonian. Daniel starts off in the Babylonian court. In part B, he, he's part of the Medo-Persian court. In part A, we have these two great images. Nebuchadnezzar's dream image of the great colossal man and the, the four kingdoms and the everlasting kingdom of God. Nebuchadnezzar's golden image that he raises up. And then we get to part B and there's two visions of beasts. The four corresponding beasts that come out of the... Um, come out of the sea that correspond to the great Nebuchadnezzar's image and the two beasts that we see that, that narrow us down to uh, two specific kingdoms, uh, the, the um, uh, uh, Medo-Persians and the Greeks. And then we get to the final parts of each section. Two kings are disciplined. Who are the two kings disciplined in part A? Who's the first one? Nebuchadnezzar. That's right. 25 points. Who's the second king that's disciplined? Belshazzar, that's right, 50 points. Yeah, Belshazzar, 50 points. Very good. So Nebuchadnezzar was disciplined and repents. Belshazzar was disciplined because he becomes the type, the foreshadowing of what character that we see uh, ultimately in the scriptures. Who? 
Antichrist, 75 points. Very good. And that takes us to two writings. The two writings explain. The first in chapter 9 is Daniel, I mean is Jeremiah, um, the book of Jeremiah. And finally, we have the book of truth, which is given to us by this divine being, given to Daniel, who speaks the book of truth to Daniel and has this incredible vision we've been working our way through. So we've been working our way through this vision um, in, uh, uh, in, in chapters 10, 11, and 12. Daniel's been fasting for three weeks. He encounters this, this, uh, this uh, uh, holy divine man, uh, messenger from God. The vision he has, it's overwhelming. It, it weakens him. He's trembling. He feels alone. He falls on his face. He's mute. He's literally in pain. There's no strength. He has no breath. He's trembling. The only way he can literally be in the presence of holiness is if the being, the holy beings actually touch him and strengthen him. Now, I, I go over this each time because uh, the presence of holiness is so, the presence of glory is so weighty. It, it, it is so holy. It's other than anything we can imagine. Um. And, uh, and Daniel had to actually be prepared to receive what he was preparing. And we had a rare glimpse into spiritual warfare. We see the, 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 the principality over Persia. We hear about a principality coming over, over, uh, Greece. We see Michael coming to assist, uh, in battle with, uh, this messenger. We hear this messenger wanting to hurry to return. Um, and, and what we get is we don't get a lot of details about this war. What we do get is that it's a real war and that it corresponds. Heavenly battles correspond with earthly battles. Things going on on earth correspond to things going on in heaven. There is real spiritual evil, real spiritual warfare. Our task is not to understand the spiritual world in detail, but to obey God in ways that he makes plain and clear to us. And that has effect in the spirit world. It has effect in the spirit world. We don't understand the depth and the level to, to which we uh, make a difference in this world. But that's for a different night. All right. So this vision, we've been going through these five parts, and we're in this last part. Started one line on, on the uh, king of Persia. Then, it, then we get a few lines on the king of Greece. And then we get a whole section on the kings from, of the north and the kings of the south, or Egypt and Syria, king of the south, king of the north. And that takes us to a specific king of the north, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who's, who is uh, in the line of Belshazzar, an antichrist-type figure. And that moves us into this figure called the king who exalts himself, the little horn, the blasphemous leader that, that takes us right into the New Testament scripture with um, uh, with the Antichrist. And I'm not going to go through all this about uh, Anti- Anti- um, Antiochus. So overall, um, the book progresses from bad to worse to worst as we're looking at these leaders, um, these evil leaders who raise up. And you go from exile under Nebuchadnezzar, to a rebellious king, Belshazzar, to this great terrifying beast, the fourth beast, who tramples everything, to these little horns who are even more horrible and more evil. And so these themes pick up when we get into um, the, the New Testament, and they go beyond even how horrible Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes is to the, um, to the lawless one, the Antichrist. 
Uh, so for those, I'm just going to mention this just so we all kind of get the story. I, I mentioned this guy, Antiochus the Fourth Epiphany. It's like I wish his name. I wish we could call him something else. Anti Four. Can we call him Anti Four? Something like that. Because it's like you know, it's a mouthful to try to say it every time. But this guy was horribly evil. He was a he was he was a king of the north. He was king of the um, one of the Greek kings, one of the Seleucids. And what he did when he came down into Israel, he he um, just utterly, utterly. Um, uh, decimated Israel. He got rid of anything that made Israel unique and different as a nation of God. He made it illegal. And then he murderously oppressed the Israelites when they wanted to live it out in spite of those laws until there was a revolt. And as a result of that revolt, the, 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 um, Faithful Jews who went through this persecution were able to throw him off, and that led to the Feast of Hanukkah. That's where Hanukkah comes from. So anybody ever heard of Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication? Yeah, that's where Hanukkah comes from. This this amazing holiday, this beautiful holiday, comes as a, as a result of this evil tyrant who who uh, uh, was a, a type of Antichrist who wanted to stomp out the people of God. And and so we, as the scriptures understood who this guy was, and they borrow from Daniel, and they move into this king of the past, who's actually a king of the future. And we spent a lot of time looking at who he was, um, uh, all throughout the scriptures, um, in in how the the New Testament authors talk about him coming. He comes with the activity of Satan. He comes with power. He comes with wonder. He comes with false signs. He deceives all who refuse to love truth, who refuse to believe truth, and who take pleasure in unrighteousness. And he, he, um, but ultimately, what Daniel tells us is though these evil tyrants rule in the world, ultimately God's the one who raises up and takes down human kings because he is the king the king of kings. His kingdom will destroy all others. It will endure forever. The the hope of the holy ones, the blessed hope of the return of Christ. And so that's why we spent so much time last week talking about our name being written in the book of hope. Why? Because if our name is written in the book of hope, we have that that eternal sense that enables us to face a world that is seeks to put despair on people and bring hope into it a hope that goes past what we're confronted with in this world all right so what then follows the lamb's book of life what comes after that what does daniel talk about after that resurrection in the end of time so we're going to cover these last few verses uh, tonight, and we're going to dive into resurrection. Daniel 12 introduces this whole idea about resurrection. So here we go. At that, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who is charge of your people. So he's talking about Michael the archangel. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation until that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And we spent Time last week, really diving into that theme all throughout the scriptures. And then it says this, catch this. 
It says, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Do you see what he just said? At the time of the end, after all of these battles, after evil seeks to have its day, and after Jesus appears and puts evil out, puts evil down, there's going to be resurrection. There's going to be people coming back from the dead, both righteous and unrighteous. It will be a time of judgment. The righteous, what will happen? And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the skies above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. It's telling us that, that those who are righteous, those who resurrect to righteousness, there is something going to be characteristically different about our bodies. We will have a new, a different body. It's going to shine. It will, last, uh, uh, it will be uh, uh, immortal. It will shine like the stars. Now, that word stars is a, is a play on words. Why? Because in the ancient world, the stars represented holy beings. So shining like the stars in the heavens means we will be shining like uh, um, the, 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 the divine eternal beings. This is a play on words here. So, this is literally the clearest reference to resurrection of the dead in the entire Old Testament. But we're going to see that there are many references to resurrection. And we're going to pull them out. And we're going to see how the New Testament authors pull them out. Um, resurrection, and, and we see there are two resurrections. Some are going to resurrect to life. Some are going to resurrect to destruction. What that means is, this is what this means. And I'm going to get into this tonight. We're going to talk about it. What this means is our hope is not going to heaven. Heaven is a waiting place. Our hope is when, if we die from this earth and we get to heaven, it's coming back here resurrected. That's our hope. But in the same way, those who are going to be resurrected to destruction will also physically resurrect and then physically be in the lake of fire. And I'm giving away where we're going to go ultimately, but we'll see this. So there is coming vindication and there is coming reward. Why is that important? We'll see why that's important. And, and it's, it's going to play out. Um, there's a, uh, well, we'll see it. So this is literally one of the most significant teachings in the entire scriptures. The coming resurrections. This is literally what we should be pinning our hope on in Christ. So, how many of you remember when Lazarus died? Remember when Lazarus died? So, there's a story goes like this. Jesus had these three friends who were super close. Super close. He, he, he went to their house. He stayed at their house. He ate with them. He loved them. And whenever he was getting, you know, going towards Jerusalem or near Jerusalem, it's one of the places he would stay when he was in, near Jerusalem. Because they, they lived a, just a, a walk outside of Jerusalem to, um, to the east on the, uh, up in Bethel, I mean, um, uh, Mount, um, Mount of Olives, behind, in Bethany, behind Mount of Olives. And so here they live, and, well, Lazarus dies. So somebody, he's sick. And somebody sends a messenger to Jesus. Hey, your friend Lazarus, he's sick. And Lazarus says, Lazarus says, okay. I mean, Jesus says, okay, and he doesn't go. And after three days, he goes. And when he gets there, uh, he'd already died. And, and, and Martha comes out first. And Martha says, Lord, if you'd have been here, if you'd have gotten here in time, 
Your friend wouldn't have died. We know. We've seen. You've healed so many. Anybody ever feel that way? We see so many others. Jesus, why didn't you heal my loved one, my friend? Jesus, where were you? And so he's having this, Jesus is having this conversation. Lazarus hasn't been raised yet. And he's, Jesus is having this conversation with Martha. And this is what he says. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She says, you know, I don't understand why you weren't here to raise my brother from the dead. But I know that doesn't make you not righteous because you didn't. Although I don't understand why it didn't happen. I know you still are close to God. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now catch this. Catch this. Your brother will rise again. Jesus says this to Martha. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now, wait a minute. Jesus hadn't been walking around teaching about resurrection. We don't go through the teachings of Jesus to that point and see him teaching about resurrection in the last day. Revelation was written later after this. Paul's letters that talk about it was written later after this. Where in the world did she get the understanding that Lazarus would be raised on the last day in resurrection. She already knew this. She, this was already in the lexicon of the people of the time, resurrection. This was already part of their theology. They already accepted it. They already knew it. They already understand it. understood it. Resurrection is not a New Testament idea. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Now, we've got to pay attention here, because we need to read our Bibles a little bit different. And I'm going to, again, get, get into this when we get there. But this word life doesn't mean to them what it means to, to, what doesn't mean to us what it means to them. Because we spiritualize the word life. They don't. When he says, I am the resurrection and the life, he means, I am literally physical life as well as spiritual life. I am the means for living forever in what God had intended, life here on a physical planet with him. How many of you know when God created Adam and Eve, he didn't intend that they die? How many of you know that? He intended they lived there on earth with him and with those he created in the spiritual world together as his family. One holy family of God. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus asks. He's asking us the same question. Do you believe this? Do you believe you will never die? You will never die. We may be gone temporarily, but we will never die. When it says we will never die, it doesn't mean you will be born again and be spiritually alive and that never goes away. That's not what it's talking about. It literally is talking about we will live physically forever with the Lord. How do we know that? Because that's what he's doing. He's talking about that right now with Martha about his brother. He's dead and he's trying to explain to her. He is going to live forever. If you believe in me, you're going to live forever. Don't you believe that, Martha? So, where did Martha get this idea? Why did she know this? Where did this come from? Well, let's dive into this. Well, first of all, we see it in Daniel. But let's look, take a look at Psalm 104. 
When you hide your face, they're dismayed. And when you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. So the psalmist is writing, he's talking about the Lord. That, that literally, uh, uh, there is, when we are away from the presence, hide your face means away from the presence of God. When God's presence doesn't exist, they're dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and they return to the dust. Scripture says this, um, um, that we came from dust, right? What did God do in Genesis 1 and 2? He took man, he took the dust of the earth, formed a human body out of it and breathed life into it. So we came from dust and the scripture says, you came, from dust you came to dust you shall return. So, and, and many have heard me tell this story before. So this little um, uh, little boy um, comes down from, uh, was, was up, uh, up, up in his bedroom and he comes down and he talks to his mama. He says, Mama, is it true what the Bible says? That we came from dust, and to dust we will return. And Mama says, yeah, that's what the Bible says. Well, Mama, somebody's under my bed, and I don't know if he's coming or going. So, Psalm, verse 30. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. What did he say a minute ago? Take away their breath, they die, and they return to dust. And then what? And then he sends forth their spirit, they are created, and they renew the face of the ground. Dust is renewed, they return to life, there's resurrection. There's resurrection. This is the psalmist speaking about giving us clues of resurrection. So, I like this from the Lexham Bible Dictionary. The issue of transcending death gave faithful worshipers of Yahweh an occasion to celebrate his steadfast love toward them in affirmation of his justice and their hope. Now, let me, what, what does all that mean? What they're saying is this. As they're reading these psalms and they're saying, look, we're, we're understanding from the scriptures that death itself won't hold us. Now, why is that hopeful? Why is that hopeful? Because that means there will be real justice even if I die in this world and justice is not served. Justice will be served. God will have his good ways. Nothing, nobody gets away with anything. Nobody gets away with anything even if it looks like it now. Now, if you're a nation who is persecuted over and over, how well does that feel? How good does that feel? How hopeful does that feel? Here's Job, chapter 19, verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer lives. The way he's talking about God here, he's calling God his Redeemer. One who redeems him. Who pays for him. We all know what redeem is. We all use coupons, every one of us. We know what redeem is. I'm redeeming my coupon. What do you mean? Check it again. It's on special. I have the coupon. He's our redeemer. And at last, he will, uh, at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Do you know what he's saying? Job is saying, my redeemer who redeems me is going to come and physically stand here on the earth. And even after I die, I'm going to come back to life and I'm going to see him in the flesh. Tommy, that's not prophetic. You want to know where Martha got it? You want to know why she understood it? It's in her scriptures. Verse 27. Whom shall I see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another? 
Job is saying, I myself am going to see my God in the flesh even after I die. That's a hope of resurrection. That's not a hope of seeing God in heaven. My heart faints within me. Do you hear what he says? This is such a great thought. The prayer of Hannah. Hannah, um, so Hannah, uh, um, had a husband and was barren. And it, um, it broke her heart to no end that she was barren. And, uh, so, Every year, her husband, Elkanah, um, would take the family. I think he had uh, two wives. And they would take the family to um, the tabernacle where it was and, uh, and, and present their offerings to the Lord. And, and Hannah would go. And one, uh, the one particular year she's going and she's crying out to God. She's crying out to God, uh, asking God for a child, for a miracle in her life. And... Um, uh, God grants her prayer. And this is Samuel, the prophet Samuel. And so she promises the prophet Samuel to God. She says, Lord, if you give me this child, I will give this child back to you. And so she's bringing this child back. She, she stayed away from the tabernacle for a few years because she uh, weaned the child. And she's bringing the child back to turn the child over to the high priest, Eli. And, um, and say, this is, I'm, I'm dedicating this child to the Lord. Um, and he becomes an, a, a, you know, basically adopted priest. Um, and, but there's this amazing prayer that she has. And we're going to read the whole thing. But there's a few pieces, snippets in this prayer. that When she's bringing this child back to the Lord, to dedicate this child to the Lord that are so prophetic. Now, listen to a few things that she says. And one of the things she prays is the way she prays. She prays in these contrasts. You see this, and then you see this. So let's take a look at this. This is in, uh, starts off in, in 1 Samuel one twenty seven. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. In other words, I'm, I'm, I'm dedicated his life to serving God. As long as he is lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshipped the Lord there. And so it's it's a reference to Samuel's life being raised up in the in the temple. And so Hannah prays. She says this: My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. And then jumping down to verse 5. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. But to those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. Do you see these opposites? You were, and and she's, she, what, she, what she's talking about is she, she's prophesying on the line. She was barren and now she's the one with the child. All her enemies made her feel shame because she was barren and now she's the one with victory from God. God granted this miracle to her. And what, what she's saying, you're going to have these contrasts. You're, those who are full are going to end up being to, hired out. Every, those who have everything, who are rich and trusting in their riches, are going to be ending up like the poor begging. He says, those who are hungry will actually be made full. 
She says, the barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. So once again, it's this picture of opposites. This prayer is going on. And the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. Saying, even after we die, we're raised up. God is the God of contrast. God is the God who takes what... Uh, um, uh, what appears to be one way and makes it the other. The, and Paul gives us this in Romans. God is the God who takes what is dead and brings it back to life. God is the God who takes nothing and makes something from nothing. Paul gives us this in Romans. He's pulling from this prayer. And she goes on and she says, He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. Not by might shall a man prevail. It's by trusting in the Lord. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And she, she, she finishes her prayer with this, with this um, um, exaltation of hope that, that as much as it seemed like the enemies are oppressing, God flips the story where there's death, he brings life, he brings resurrection, and ultimately his king is, reigns on earth. It's an amazing prayer. Go back and check it out. So, Scripture tells us this. God delivers us from the depths of the grave. This is in Psalm 86. God delivers us from the depths of the grave. Psalm 86 starts in 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. That's a huge, I mean, we could do a whole sermon on that one verse right there. Unite my heart to fear your name. All of the diverse proclivities of our, of our passions, of our heart, of our soul, are brought into unity when we fear God. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. He says this, I give thanks to you, O Lord my God. With my whole heart, I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me, your chesed, your covenant faithfulness, your mercy. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. So you've got to understand, what is Sheol? Sheol is literally the place of the dead. He's not talking about spiritually awakening here. He's talking about literally his soul being resurrected out of the place of the dead. So David prophesies resurrection. And what's interesting is how the apostles take this resurrection prophecy and they apply it to Jesus multiple times. And we're going to look at, uh, we're going to look at this a little bit. So this is David prophesying. This is in Psalm 16. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. See, listen, this is what David's saying. My soul will not be left in the place of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. Now he's prophesying here about Jesus' resurrection, but he's also speaking about our resurrection as well. Now, um, in verse, the next verse, verse 11 says, you, have made, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. He's literally talking about life after resurrection right there. 
You have made known to me the path of life. What did he just say? You're not going to leave me abandoned in the place of death. You're going to bring me back to life. You're giving me the path to resurrection. You have made known to me the path to life. And that path, that path is the path that leads to your presence. We already saw Job say, I'm going to see my God on this earth. I'm going to be in his presence, in his face. And there is fullness of joy. There are pleasures forevermore when we walk the path that leads us to resurrection. Now, in Peter, borrows from this as he's trying to, to, uh, um, uh, or not trying to, as he is explaining to the crowds this phenomenon, the Holy Spirit being poured out, that this was done by Jesus, that he is the Messiah, he is the king, and we can tell you why he is the king, because he resurrected. And you go, resurrected? We weren't expecting a resurrected Messiah. He says, you should have been. David prophesied about it. And this we're going to look at. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. He's like, guys, we can go over. We know where David was buried. He's right here. See it? It says David on the tombstone. Not really, but they knew where it was. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades. In, so we need to learn two words here a little bit. In the New Testament, you'll see the word Hades a lot. Hades is a, it's a Greek borrow word. So in Greek mythology, Hades was the place of death. And it's just the way Greeks would have said Sheol. In Hebrew, Sheol was the place of death. Sheol actually carries about three meanings, but it was the place of death is one of them. And so when they say Hades, it means the same thing. It's just different language. So, nor did his flesh see corruption. So what what does he say? Jesus' flesh never saw corruption. He was in the the grave three days. He come up. He returned. So he's prophesying about Jesus. Now, Paul in the early church expected resurrection in accordance with both the scriptures and evidence. They expected resurrection. Why? Because the scripture said it and we have evidence of it. Now, what's interesting, we're going to look at a creed that Paul writes. Paul writes down a creed for us um, that, that is, scholars tell us that this creed was, was within two to five years of the actual resurrection. In other words, we have eyewitness written, uh, we have creedal testimony that has been written down for us that dates to within two years of Jesus resurrecting from the dead. Why do I say that? Because some of us may have heard people say, well, all those stories about Jesus coming back from the dead were decades later. Those were legends. None of the original people saw that or wrote it down. Wrong. Even skeptical scholars acknowledge that this goes back historically, the historicity of this, to within two to five years of the actual resurrection. All right, so here's what Paul says. He said, for I delivered to you as of first importance. How important is it? Uh, how important is it? First importance. So if it's first important, how important should it be to us? First, thank you very much. 75 points right there. And a bonus for being enthusiastic. All right. First importance about what, what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. 
that Christ was doing what the scriptures said he was going to do. Now, what's fascinating, well, I won't go there, because i got a lot more to cover. And that, that, and that he appeared to Cephas. Who's Cephas? Anybody know who Cephas is? Peter! Okay, so that, that was worth 15 points. I'm about three boys, about five, six points. Now, we'll multiply them. Everybody gets 15 points. There we go. So Peter, Peter, Kepha, Cephas, it's all the same name. I know it doesn't sound like it, but it is. It means rock. You can call him Rocky if you want. So, uh, uh, then to the twelve. So Jesus appears to Cephas. He appears to the twelve. Um, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most, uh, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Um, and, and so why does Paul say they fell asleep? Because they're coming back! That's what sleep means. Sleep means that they're not, they're not permanently gone and dead. They're not just, it's not a permanent heaven. Sleep means it is a temporary place of waiting to be resurrected. They are present with the Lord. But they will be coming back with Him, and we're going to see that in a few minutes. Um, so, uh, so most of whom are still alive. So there's like, what's Paul saying? The scripture said it, the scripture said it, the scripture said it. And by the way, here's one witness, here's two witnesses, here's 12 witnesses, here's 500 witnesses. How many witnesses do you want? Then he appeared to James and then to the apostles. Now notice something. Catch this. I just got to point this out. I can't help myself. Do you notice it says, what does the second half of that sentence say? It says, appeared to James and then to who? All the apostles. All the apostles. Now check this scripture out. He appeared to Cephas, and then to who? The twelve. Who are the twelve? Apostles. So obviously, there are more apostles than just the twelve. Huh. So this is a different teaching, and we won't go into this tonight. The twelve are unique and different than all other apostles. They carry an authority that is unique and different and separate. But there are other apostles who were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And by the, uh, they had that gift and calling of one who was sent as an eyewitness of the resurrection. Hey, D. Uh, and, and, and yet there are other places that talk about apostles who it, it refers to them as missionaries. They are, it's another way of talking about a missionary. One who is going and planting the word of God. So anyway, that's... That really doesn't have anything to do with their teaching. No, I just can't help myself. All right. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now, what's fascinating, when it gets to the seven, number seven, he appears to all these people who were looking, you know, who, who were following Jesus before he died. But then we get to James. James didn't follow Jesus before he died. And now he's one of the witnesses. James was a skeptic. He was telling him, my brother's crazy. Don't listen to him. Then he saw him come back to life because I guess you better. And then we get to Paul, and Paul's even worse than James, right? Because, uh, because he, he's, why? He says, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Now we get one of the enemies who's, who's, uh, testifying to the resurrection. So, we're getting the resurrection here. Now, now what Paul does, is he takes the Old Testament prophets, and what they talk about with resurrection, and he applies it to believers. So notice, all these talk about resurrection, it didn't start with Jesus. It didn't start in the New Testament. It didn't start just because Jesus rose from the dead. This is all rich, deep 
theology that's going all the way back is from, from, from drawing forward from the scriptures. And we're going to see it even more. So here's Paul. This is, uh, this is in the book of Hosea. This is what the prophet Hosea wrote. He said, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. Huh? I will, I will pay for them and bring them back from the place of the dead. Now tell me that's not prophetic. Well, he wasn't a prophet, so it should be, right? I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? Where's your power? Where's your ability to keep them in that place? God is going to ransom and redeem them from the power of death. What is the ultimate power of the enemy? Death. The ultimate power of the enemy is that he caused us to die. And as a result, we were forever slaves to him. And what is he prophesying in the Old Testament before Jesus ever even comes? God's going to ransom. God's going to redeem. God's going to overcome death. He goes on. O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. All right. So in Isaiah... Um, uh, Isaiah says it this way. He says, he shall swallow up death forever. Swallow. He's going to get rid of death. Well, if we remain in the place of death, he would be getting rid of us. No one gets got rid, rid of in that sense. Everyone resurrects. Now, some are going to end up where death ends up. And some are going to end up where life ends up. And we're going to see that. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. You see, he wants us to understand, no matter what we experience in this world, no matter how much evil we see in this world, no matter how much injustice is going on in this world, God is going to make it right in this world. In this world, we will have a righteous king who reigns over this world. Okay, so Paul takes these two passages. He's going to use the Isaiah one first, and then he's going to use the Hosea. Now, I'm going to give you a little clue here. Are you ready? This is a little clue on how to read the New Testament. You see, a lot of times, the authors of the New Testament, they don't do what I'm doing here, go back and quote for you the Old Testament and say, I'm applying it. They simply just take the words and throw it right in their letters and expect that those who are listening know the Old Testament so they know where they got it. Okay, so we're going to read Paul, and that's what Paul does. Paul's just going to go back, pull these words out of Isaiah first, pull some words out of Hosea, and just apply it to our lives. That's what Paul's doing. But I'm showing you these so we can see where he got it, so when we're reading his letter, we can say, Ah, hey, Paul, I see what you did. Ah, I see what you did. And that's how we learn to read our New Testaments. All right, so, 1 Corinthians 15. When the perishable puts on imperishable, when this body here that's going to die puts on the immortal body that cannot die, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass that saying, the saying that was written, death is swallowed up in victory. He's quoting Isaiah. When we resurrect from the dead, Isaiah was talking about resurrection, guys. I'm telling you that now. That's what Paul's saying. And then he goes on, Oh, death, where is your sting? Now he's quoting Hosea. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? He's literally quoting from these guys. 
And he's showing this resurrection. Now, I'm taking just one small little piece. If you want to read a chapter about resurrection, go back and read 1 Corinthians 15, the whole thing. And you know, it's, just, it's, just, it's, a, it's a whole treatise on the subject. We're going to hit little pieces from it. Um, but we got so much more to cover tonight. All right. So I'm back to quoting here from Lexham Bible Dictionary. And, and it talks about this scholar. His name is Levinson. So I'm going to read what he says, and then I'll kind of explain it. He says, it's contrary to widespread misconceptions, the Hebrew Bible and rabbinic traditions did anticipate an eschatological resurrection of the dead to restore deserving people to life. What he's saying is this. Contrary to the fact that some people think that the Old Testament doesn't talk about resurrection, and the rabbis didn't expect a resurrection. The fact of the matter is, they do and they did. And I'm, this is the whole case we've been making this whole time. They were, for, they were clearly expecting it. The resurrection of the dead uh, drew most centrally on the long-standing conviction that God would prove faithful to his promise of life for his people. Now, this is really important. Why? This is one of the keys, once again, to read your New Testament is completely different. To read your Bible is different. What, what this guy is saying here is saying, look, God's promised us life here on earth. If you read the Torah, one of the things that's been pointed out about the Torah, the, the Torah is the first five books of the Bible. And this is the covenant, the constitution for the nation of Israel. And if you, if you read it, it doesn't talk about the afterlife. I mean, there's hints in there. But it doesn't really talk about it. What does it talk about? It talks about life on this earth. Life in this world. And it talks about the principles to live life on this earth in a way that we can be in relationship with God and flourish in relationship with one another. It's why we, it's where we get the two great commands. And the whole thing hangs on the command. It teaches us to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength. To love our neighbor as ourself. It teaches that this all comes out of the Torah. And it's all about doing that here, together, in community, in relationship. And, and, and so God makes all these promises and all the prophets come along. And there's all these promises. And, and what, what this guy is saying is like, look, if all of these promises are just spiritualized and they're all about just getting to heaven, then God's not actually keeping his promise. God's keeping his promise because he's actually going to do it through resurrection here on this earth. And he is going to make everything right. And so when you read in the Bible that we are given eternal life, we are giving everlasting life. He's, again, he's not talking about us getting to heaven. He's talking about we actually get to live forever. Without exception, without Without the expectation of resurrection, the restoration of Israel would be something less than what the rabbis thought the Torah had always intended it to be. The ultimate victory of the God of life. God is the God of life. You see, look, how many remember, um, does anybody remember the week before Jesus died? He's, he's, he's in and out of the temple, and, and they're, the, um, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Herodians are testing him over and over. They're testing him. They keep asking him all these questions, trying to test Jesus. Anybody remember that? Okay. Well, what do we do with this coin? Do we, do we pay taxes to Caesar? Huh? Jesus? You're such a wise teacher trying to trap him. Right? Well, one of the questions they had... One of those questions, the Sadducees, like, okay, and brings up Leverite marriage. Oh man, um, married married uh, married this woman didn't have didn't have a son, so he dies. 
So she marries the next brother. He's got seven brothers. But he doesn't have a son. So she dies. So he marries, she marries the next brother. And all the way down. Because it's, it's about getting an heir for the land. It's about, about uh, how to live out. And, and so they, they say to Jesus, Oh, Jesus, if there's such a thing as resurrection, whose wife will she be in the resurrected life? And Jesus says, you, you, err, you err for two reasons. Number one, you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. You don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. If you truly believe that the Torah was about living life with God, you would understand God's going to make every promise in that come to pass on this earth. That's what he intended from the beginning. It's why it's the first story in the Bible. And it's also why it's the last. If you look at the first story in the Bible, and you go look at the last, you can take literally the whole Bible in between and just fold it down for a minute, look at the first story and the last. You say, hey, what God started, he finished. It's the same scene. It's the same scene. It's got all the same things in it. The tree of life, flourishing, God's presence, garden, mountains, rivers. It's the same thing. It ends the way it begins. So, here we go in Isaiah. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. I, I'm not, you know, sure if we can understand what that means. That's too spiritual. Your bodies shall live, their bodies shall rise. That was facetious in a joke. You're five points if you left. No, just joking. You who dwell in the dust. I know, I've got to come up with better stuff, right? <laughs> Your bodies who dwell in the dust awake and sing for joy. Your dew is dew for, is a dew for light, uh, a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. This is Isaiah putting it in poetry for us. He's talking about resurrection. This is all throughout the Old Testament. Um, when we get to Isaiah 53. Uh, how many have read Isaiah 53? So, how many, let me put it a different way. How many are not familiar? Please tell me if you're not familiar with Isaiah 53. Okay, thank you. Isaiah 53 is this passage in the scripture that, that describes the suffering of Christ and the, the atoning work of Christ through suffering uh, for the world. It's, and it's literally described, he's called, the, the, the character of Isaiah 53 is called the suffering servant. Now, when we get to one particular verse, all of a sudden it just takes this twist, this turn. Because, because he's being crushed, he's being broken, it's for our sins, it's for our iniquities, it's for our guilt. It, you know, all of this, this imagery of this, he's being marred, you can't even recognize him anymore. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a horrifically beautiful passage of describing the, the crucifixion. Do you, you know how many uh, um, um, uh, Jews who have never read um, this passage... When they're given this passage, and you ask them where it's from, they say, well, that's, that's from the Christian New Testament. Yeah. It's like, no, this is Isaiah. They go, what? There are many Jews who have come to Christ just by reading Isaiah 53 alone. Just by reading Isaiah 53. Check, if you've never read it, look it up and you'll see. But when you get to verse 10, all of a sudden there's this sudden change. There's this subtle change in verse 10. This is what it says. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has, put an end, he, he, he has put him to grief. 
when his soul makes an offering for guilt, this is Nasham Korban, this is the language of offering, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Do you see how it suddenly changes the poem? So Isaiah is writing this in a poem. Do you see what the poetry is doing? Right in the middle of this crushing moment on behalf, it switches and, come, and turns around to life. It's resurrection. It's resurrection. The, the prophetic poet speaking of the resurrection of Christ. Philippians 2.6 says this. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So what, what that means is, here's Jesus, seated on the throne, very, very being God. And he's willing to not hold, to, a thing to be grasped means not hold on to it. No, I'm not going down there. I'm glory. Why would, why would glory be born a human baby? That makes no sense. Or does it? He doesn't think this is something to be held on to. He says, have this mind in you, which whose mind is in Christ, this humility. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is what Isaiah is talking about. This suffering servant whose obedience goes to the point of not just leaving glory and coming here, not just coming here and exhibiting God's glory, but of being obedient to the Father, of literally being crushed in crucifixion. And it says what? Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, what's it telling us? That there is literally no one who is not going to bow a knee before Jesus. No one. No false, uh, un- uh, um, intelligent evil, false spirit. No one who's not going to bow before Jesus. All right. So we're going to look at some passages now that talk about eternal life. Um, and most of us have heard, you know, we want, who wants to have eternal life? Anybody want to have eternal life? I, th- I think I might like to have eternal life. And most of us, when we hear eternal life, the, the, the normal Christian way of thinking about eternal life is, who, another way of saying is, who wants to go to heaven? Anybody want to go to Well, look, I'm, you know, if Jesus doesn't come first, I definitely want to go to heaven. Don't get me wrong. Okay. But that is not the meaning of eternal life. That's not what it means. Heaven is the waiting place that, by, that we wait with the Lord for him to return. By the way, is Jesus in heaven right now? Yeah, Jesus is in heaven. In what form is he in heaven? Bodily, physically. He physically ascended into heaven. And is going to physically return to earth. Many people knew that. That's what it says. They're standing there on top of the mountain. They actually watch Jesus' body go up into heaven. And they're standing there staring at the, you know, staring at the clouds going, oh my goodness. Kind of like, like, you coming back now, Lord? And the angel, the angel said to him, says, y'all can go home. He says, look, you know, the same way you saw him come back, that's, that's, I mean, leave, that's the way he's going to come. And by the way, nobody will miss it. It won't be secret. You'll know when it happens. 
All right. So let's, let's look at these passages. For, how many of you know this? We, we know this. One. We've said it over and over. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That means life here on earth with the Lord. That's what it's talking about. You ever think about that verse that way before? Hmm. Let's look at another one. John 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. You can't pass from death to life unless you overcome death. Eternal life means overcoming death, being living here with Christ. Let's look at another one. This is John 11. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection. We read this one already. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he, what? Live. Though he die, yet he shall live. To live, to have eternal life, doesn't mean to die and be with him. It means literally to live forever on earth with God. The resurrection of Jesus means believers will be resurrected to life. All right. So... What that's saying is the fact that, how do we know that we get resurrected? How do we know? How do we know that's our end besides everything else we've been talking about? Because Jesus himself was resurrected. And it says this, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, those who were waiting for resurrection, he was the first one. Jesus was the first one. He's the one that leads the way. Because he does, everyone else can. And everyone else will. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. Because we we all died because of Adam. Right? And by the way, don't blame it on him because we would have done the same thing. Exactly. It's Eve's fault. (laughs) Spoken like a true husband. (laughs) <laughs> yes uh, we, we, we would have done the same thing they did Exact same thing And that's one of the points of the story But guess what There was a second Adam And he didn't do it He died for his bride Huh Instead of dying with his bride He died for his bride Huh The second Adam But the words, but, but the words, it is counted to him, were not written for his sake alone. This is Romans 4. But for ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised, who was, oh, that, in him who raised for the dead Jesus our Lord. We will be counted as having life if we believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. If you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Notice, giving you life means giving it to your mortal body, not just getting you to heaven. Isn't that interesting? How many have read that before? Giving life to your mortal body and will also uh, uh, give life to your mortal body through his spirit who dwells in you. The Holy Spirit, who is dwelling in you right now, is dwelling in you because he's looking forward to the day when, you know, if he's like dwelling in you when Jesus comes back, he gets the job of changing your body into immortal. That's kind of cool. 
I already know it. I've ordered mine up. It's going to be 33. Yeah. I know. I know it. (laughs) Anyway. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. So everything's given to Jesus. Everything's given. The Father's given everything to Jesus. What does Jesus give? For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Notice what it means, what life, what does the catch? What does life mean there? Well, what did it mean from the Father for Jesus? It means being raised from the dead. So the life Jesus gives us is to be raised from the dead. You ever read that before? I got it out of the Bible. I really did. You can look it up. But I put the reference there. So, um, if this is true, if what we're talking about is true, it means something. It has a purpose for it. There's a way that's foundational for how we're to live. There's a way that's a priority for how we're to live. His resurrection as the first fruit suggests a foundational priority of a living hope for his people, as well as the supreme authority to deliver them from the curse of death. Listen, what this is saying, if we actually understood this, we have no fear of death. Number one. Number two, we live in a way that is actually hope alive. Anybody heard the phrase, keep hope alive? That's our job. We're living hope. We're living hope. What that means is we are living and walking in a world that is filled with death, people who are dying, and when we enter the, the, the moment, we bring living hope with us. And that, that, that our resurrection, if we understood that we are looking forward to pleasure forevermore at God's right hand, Psalm 1611, in a resurrected world, we would be living in a way that exudes that hope wherever we are, not afraid of whatever death might bring. Do you follow that? 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man also comes resurrection from the dead. Verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Do you see the spiritual warfare in understanding resurrection? Why? Because it is the spirits of the the air, the powers, the principalities, the thrones, are ministers of death. When we bring living hope, we are bringing the message of living hope. Those powers of death are going to be overcome how death itself is going to be destroyed through resurrection. We are literally bringing the power of overcoming the forces of evil. For he must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. How are we to live? We are to, be, we are to live in a way that we understand death gets destroyed. 
live in a way to understand death gets destroyed. So, in the meantime, what does that mean? Believers are to suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. So, if you want to leave at this point, I understand. No, but seriously, joking aside, this this piece is really, really key. Um, how did Jesus resurrect? Why did Jesus need to resurrect from the dead? Do I? To conquer death, but but where was he? Bef- the moment before he was dead, he was dead. How did he die? Crucified. So we're talking about the resurrection. We're talking about this is a pretty amazing thing, but it doesn't actually happen without crucifixion. If he doesn't die, we don't. Death doesn't die. If death doesn't die, we don't get the resurrection. Now, if we're to live Christ, what does that mean we live? We live his suffering as much as we live his life. Now, let's talk about that for a minute. What in the world does that mean? How does that look? How does that apply? So this is Romans 8. And if children, then heirs. If we're God's children, then we're heirs. That means we we get to inherit all this. We get to inherit. Everything God has, we're, we're, we're... you know, hey, guys, God wrote a will and we're in it. <laughs> we're in it. That's pretty cool. You ever been in a will before? You are now. All right. It says now, if we're heirs of God, we're fellow heirs with Christ. It means he's, he's a fellow heir with us. So provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Wow. Now, it's not, what he's not saying is somehow your suffering earns you something. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, look, what did Jesus do? He came to live a life that was sacrificial, meaning he came to live a life that was to serve others. He came to live a life that was to love others, that was to apply to others. And you know what? It didn't matter how much it cost him to do it. In fact, because... He was supremely obedient in it, perfectly obedient in it, willing to suffer everything this evil world threw at him. He ultimately has the name above all names, right? We read about that. But in the same way, we are to image him. We are, it's not that we walk around looking for suffering. We walk around looking how to love. We walk around looking how to serve. We walk around looking how to lay our lives down on behalf of others. And in so doing, I mean, no, that's hard. Oh, you all figured out how to love perfectly already. Help me, teach me, please, because it's hard for me. Right? I have to crucify my flesh. It's suffering when I don't get to do what I want, and I have to give someone else what they want in its place. It's difficult when I've got to put what I want on the side in order to prefer uh, uh, my brother, my sister, my family member, my my friend, my enemy. Verse 9, Philippians 3, And be found in him. We're going to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection 
and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, Paul says. What's he saying? Look, Paul, the Paul, you know, he puts this in backwards order. Notice, notice he says, I know him in his resurrections so that I can share in the cross. He puts it backward. What happened first? The cross happened first, and then the resurrection. What Paul's saying is, because of the resurrection, I've come to know him. I've come to have this living hope. I've come to not be afraid of death. I've come to have all this glory, all those things we talked about resurrection. And because I know that, well, I know Jesus, and that means I'm going to live like him. I'm going to lay my life down like him. I'm going to understand something. I'm going to understand that the glory that is to come is not something to hold on to. But I am have the mind that Christ had, and that is to humble myself and to take on the form of a servant, because that's what Jesus did. And to lay that life of servant down, service down on behalf of others, because that's what Jesus did. And when I lay my life of service down on behalf of others, God will raise me up. Having this mind in us that Christ had. Sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So this means that they should walk in the newness of life as slaves of obedience and righteousness by God's grace. So the new life God's given us is not so that we can get all our answers prayered. Our, our, all our answers prayered. Can you get all your answers prayered? So not so that we have all our prayers answered, but so that uh, um, and, and, and everything go right in our lives, but it's so that we surrender to him. We surrender to him. In, why? Because there are coming pleasures forevermore. There are glories that Paul says we can't even imagine what those glories are. He says the worst this world can give you doesn't even come close to comparing to the glory that's coming. And Paul's like, guys, I've seen it. I've seen it. I've been there. I got a taste of it. I'm telling you. Trust me. Paul says. Trust me. That's hard. Take a look at Romans 6. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We take on the death of Christ. We get, we get the resurrection of Christ. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we should no longer be enslaved to sin. Look, here's what he's saying. is like when Jesus died on the cross, he died a representational substitutionary death. In other words, when Jesus died, we were literally in him. Now, how can I'll just give you one little theory of how that could be. This, this is kind of simple. So um, how many um, – there's a story in the Bible. It's in the book of Hebrews. Um, and it says this. It says um, Abraham – so there, there, was these, there was these kings that were fighting. There was four kings and five kings. They had this big old war. The problem was – the problem was is when the one group of kings won – uh, they captured his nephew Lot. Now, Abraham didn't like that. So Abraham got his friends, and they got together, and they chased down these kings. Okay? So they chased them down. They get a hold of them at night, and they, they beat the tar out of them. And they get everything those kings captured, they get back. All the captives that they took, they get back. All the plunder that they stole, they get back. So Abraham and his friends, they take all this back down, and they come down, and, and all the people are set free. They all go home. But, and, and, um, but Abraham, he has, uh, has uh, uh, um, his, his portion from all this. And what he does is he goes to this guy. This guy's name is Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is a, is a um, it, 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 um, Melchi, king, Sadak, righteousness. Um, it says that he's the king of Salem um, or of peace, king of peace, uh, Shalom. 
um, and, and it's tied to the city of Jerusalem. So this guy is just like awesome spiritual being that we compare him to Jesus. And so what does Abraham do? He takes a tithe and he gives it to him. He gives him a tithe, right? Because he's a, he's a high priest. He's, the, he's, a king, he's a king of peace. He's the king of righteousness. He represents all this. Now the Bible says, who do you, do, when, you, when, when you see people give a tithe, do you give a tithe to somebody greater than you or somebody lesser than you? I'm going to ask you that. When you give a tithe, and then, you know, like if you're giving a tithe to a king, do you give a tithe to somebody greater? If you give a tithe to God, are you giving a tithe to somebody greater than you or somebody lesser than you? Thank you. There's the answer. <laughs> All right. Now, what he says is this. He's making this example. He says, Levi, who was Abraham's uh, great-grandson, that wasn't born yet. But he was in the seed of Abraham. In other words, he was inside of Abraham. Because Abraham was going to have Isaac. Isaac was going to have Jacob. Jacob was going to have Levi. So the seed of Levi was in Abraham when he's doing this. And what he says is, when Abraham gives this tithe, Levi is giving this tithe. Now, why is he saying that? He's saying that because he's making a different point. But I'm going to, I'm going to apply this to, to us in a minute. He's making the point that the priesthood of Melchizedek is greater than the priesthood of Levi because Levi tithed through Abraham. There's this greatness here. Do you all see that? But the point I want us to see is Levi was in Abraham. Everybody get that? Yeah, I need you to get that in order to get where I'm going with this. Everybody get that? Okay. By faith, when we place our faith and trust in Jesus, what happens to us? Tell me. We place our faith and trust in Jesus. What happens to us? Do what? We're in him. What are other let words? We're redeemed. Anybody ever heard the term born again? Born anew. A new creation. Okay. We are born anew. We are a new creation. We come out of Christ. So the seed that is our new life, is in Christ when he dies on the cross. See it? Do you see it? Who we will be is in Christ when he's died. In the same way Levi was in Abraham when Abraham's tithing, the new life that becomes our life is in Christ when he dies. So he dies a representative death. He dies a substitutionary death. He dies in our place. But we also die with him. How do we? Because we become born from him. We become offspring of God. We come from him. And what, is it, what does that mean? That means he does away with our sin. We get his nature. We get his righteousness. We are born from him. It's not something we earned. It was something that was in Christ. It's something, that's how we get his righteousness. We become his righteousness. We become this. And so we are no longer enslaved to sin. We're no longer enslaved to sin. Why? Because when Jesus died, we died. When he rose, we rose. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. 
For sin shall have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. So, uh, um, what is all this saying? Paul is saying, because we have come into that new life, that I am literally to crucify. I, I am literally to become a slave to the righteousness that I've been given to him instead of a slave to sin. And when we do that, there is suffering. There is suffering for our souls. There is suffering for our flesh. There is suffering because there are people who won't understand as we try to live his righteousness, his truth, his love, his spirit in, in, uh, in through and to others. You see, just that battle with sin alone. Now, look, uh, I'll just stop there because i got so much more. See what kind of love the Father has given us? That we should be called children of God? And so we are. The reason why the world doesn't know us is it didn't know him. Did the world know Jesus? Jesus stood there right in front of them. Did they know him? No. <laughs> the very means of creating what they didn't know. And so he, John's saying, the world's not going to know us. In that same sense, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. This is we, we're not yet. We're not yet all that we're going to be. But we are all that he is in us to live it now. And everyone who thus hopes purifies himself as he is pure. See, if that's our hope, if resurrection is our hope, if that's what we're looking forward to, if we're looking for, then we purify ourselves now. We, we work out that process. We struggle through that process. We, 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 we fail. We, stand, we confess. We stand up. We be authentic and real to God. We give it back to God. We return to him and we we ask for his strength. We ask for his power and we move again. We develop spiritual disciplines that we grow closer to Jesus, purifying ourselves. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable. Hang on one second. Let me see where I am. uh, what uh, What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Guys, we don't have a clue of what it's going to be like when we have a resurrected body. Anybody remember anything about Jesus when he was resurrected? Anybody remember anything? Yeah, he still, that was fascinating. He still had the holes in his hand, right? There were markings on his body that you could recognize, uh, by which you could recognize him. He still had those. That's fascinating. What else was fascinating about resurrected Jesus? Yeah, he ate food. You have no idea how glad I am food comes with the new kingdom. I love that. Oh, man. I I like some food. Anyway, (laughs) what else? Can you imagine what food's going to taste like? I mean... Can you imagine? I can. I, all I can. All I can know is that it's going to taste amazing, and you can have all of it. <laughs> you don't have to diet from any of it. That's going to be great. What he what? He walks through walls. I mean, there's like an alternate dimension to the physical life after resurrection. You know, it's like the, the, it says the apostles were in a room and it was locked, and Jesus appears. Yet he was physical, resurrected in a physical body. Tell me how that works. I, I can't. But it does. Can you imagine just just kind of appearing places? All right, what else? Anything else? 
Yeah, he wasn't always recognized. That's fascinating. I think in some place points he wasn't recognized a little bit because they weren't expecting to be resurrected. Right? I think this is probably more the case with Mary in the garden. When she doesn't recognize it, and she, she kind of, I, I picture like she sees him out of the corner of the eye. There's some dude hanging there, and she's wondering where, she's looking for a dead body that they, you know, they pulled out of the tomb. And then, and then, so I think that's part. But there were other places where they weren't really sure. They had to see the miracle for him to, to see him, except for seeing the, those other things. Yeah, this is good. So we're going to have a spiritual body. So it will be a physical body, but it will be, there will be a spirituality to There will be a spiritualness to it. Um, uh, I want to get to. So when is this going to happen? How is this going to happen? I want to get to a couple of these scriptures as we close out. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So um, Paul's telling us, that's in Thessalonians, you can go read it. This is, he tells us kind of how the sequence is going to happen when, when all this goes down. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God. So this is not a secret event. When Jesus comes back, it is not a secret event. He said, We're going to be on earth, and Jesus is going to come back, and there's going to be a cry of a command. There's going to be the voice of an archangel. There's going to be the sound of a trumpet. By the way, this, well, I'll tell you that in a minute. And it says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So before those on earth are actually transformed into their resurrected body, those who died in Jesus, they'll be the first ones to get their new bodies. They'll actually come back first. Because why? Because they'll be coming back with him. As he's coming down instantaneously, somehow, They all have their new bodies, and they're coming with them. They're following him. Then, we who are alive, who are left, those who are on earth, when that happens, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Now, when it says we'll meet with the Lord in the air, it doesn't mean we hang out in the air. Okay? This is a picture. It's called the perusa. The word for it is called a perusa. In the ancient world, when a king conquered... And he was coming home after he conquered. The entire city left the city and went out of the city to meet the king and came into the city ushering the king in. This is the picture. When the king comes, all who are dead in Christ are coming with him. And all who are in the city will be caught up with him and then will be ushering in, coming into his kingdom with him. That's the perusal. This is what's going on. Let's look at it in another place. This is over in Corinthians. Behold, I'll tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In other words, this resurrection is our hope. This is the blessed hope. Um, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at now, now Paul's getting specific. To the Thessalonians, he said the, the, the trumpet will sound. In Corinthians, he tells us exactly which trumpet it is. It's the last one. And I would submit to you, it actually coincides with the seventh trumpet in the book of Revelation. But that's a teaching for another day. We won't go there now. So it's the last one. Okay? It's everybody out of the pool time. Um, it's like the, you know, the, the, the lifeguard blowing the whistle. You know, adult swim only. Right? Um, if you have kids in your swimming pool, you know what I just meant. So, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead shall be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Now, here we look at it again in Revelation. 
These, these all, we take all these pieces and we put them together and we get the big picture. Now, here's, here's talking about resurrection in Revelation. Now, now, notice how this is going to correspond back to the Daniel passage. And there's one more, Matthew, that really corresponds to the Daniel passage. Then I saw thrones. Seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its marks on their foreheads or their hands. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. So we see there's two resurrections. Guess what we read in the book of Daniel? There's two resurrections. And in the first resurrection, we get the martyrs. And we get those who kept themselves unstained from the world, from, from the, uh, 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 living in righteousness, who are resurrected and coming back with Christ, reigning with him in the first resurrection. It's the resurrection of the righteousness. Verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. Guess what? There's a second death. The first death isn't the end of death. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign for him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth, and they surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But the fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. This is, this is when it talks about earth and sky, it's not only talking about a new heavens and a new earth. It's literally talking about everything in the spirit world as well as everything in the physical world. There is nothing that hides from the presence of God. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. The analysis tying together with what we studied last week. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the, ju- and the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. This is the second resurrection. To give up the dead means they literally have physical bodies to stand before the judgment of God. Why? Because God is, the presence of God is now on earth. He's returned. He's come. This is final judgment. Each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, going back to 1 Corinthians, it says, Then comes the end when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom of, to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority, and every power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Um. I'm going to, I'll read this here. We'll close out. The meaning of Easter faith is affirmation. Easter faith. Easter Sunday. 
uh, uh, um, Resurrection Sunday. It's the day we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. The meaning of this is affirmation of the living Messiah from the New Testament to the present. I love this quote right here. George Allen Ladd, that's who Ladd is, succinctly summarized this fact of the apostolic faith. Faith did not create the appearances. The appearances created faith. Faith did not create the resurrection. The resurrection created faith. We're not standing here creating a faith hoping for resurrection. It's the fact of the resurrection of Jesus that we stand here in faith. This is the hope. This is what Daniel's talking about. And I'm going to stop. I'll stop right there. I actually have, oh, only 20 more slides. But yeah, I know. Well, look, how do you take the biggest subject of the Bible and, and, and even put it into this small amount? Well, we covered a lot of ground tonight. I'm going to close in prayer, and then um, I'll open it up for a minute or two for questions before we leave. Father, we bless you. I pray that, that uh, we truly get and understand that fact, that it was not faith that created the resurrection. It was the resurrection that created faith. Our faith is not... It is not a made up on a whim looking for an unfounded hope. Our faith stands on the hope of the resurrection of Jesus and the coming resurrection of the body of Christ. Lord, I pray that what we heard tonight would not just stay here tonight. That somehow we would look at our, the word of God differently. That we would look at the world and our interaction in this world differently. That our lives would be lived differently. May we understand the blessed hope, the return of our Savior, the return of our Messiah. To shine like the stars. Let's pray these things and thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. All right. Let me know when we're turned off, Sally.